Well, we've been, every Sunday, go through a catechism. It's part of our uh, service. It's, we call it a time of teaching, and certainly that's what it is. Uh, what a blessing it is to be in a church where we've been taught these things. Uh, the blessings of being able to learn through catechisms, the question and answer form of, of driving learning into our minds. Uh, we've been walking through the Heidelberg Catechism for some time now, and I want to bring your attention to one that we've already gone over as a, as a church. Maybe you don't remember it. Question 86. Question 86 in the Heidelberg Catechism it asks this question. It says, since we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ, without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? Why must we still be about doing good works if the work of Christ is done in us? Well, the answer that's given is because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit, after his own image, that so we may testify by the whole, the whole of our conduct, the way we live, by our gratitude to God for his blessings, and that he may be praised by us. Also, this is where I want to focus in on here, also that every one may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Well, in our text today, church, Peter addresses at least one of those reasons among those given in the answer to that question as to why we must still do good works. And again, that is that one may be assured in himself of his faith and that by the good fruits produced, we have a great need of assurance of a true and enduring faith. We do. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the faith. We need that assurance. Those of us believers who have been blessed to have an assurance like this, and have had it for a reasonably long time, we can sometimes, I think, be guilty of taking that assurance for granted. But for those that are buffeted by doubt, and I've talked to some of you over the past, buffeted by doubt and experience, I myself was there at one time, and an experience, an inexperience in the faith, that desire for assurance is great. We also need a means to keep us from stumbling. And I think this is more keenly recognized as a very great need of ours by those who are more experienced in faith. Since it is typically those who have been a long time in the faith who know a thing or two about struggling that struggle that we're experiencing the flesh more so, I think, than the new convert. Nevertheless, the, Paul, the apostle here, uh, Peter, in Scripture in whole, Scripture in whole, testifies to both the young and the experienced believer of our great need for an enduring faith that can weather the battles of life, and supplies an endless supply of assurance. Brothers and sisters, we've been given that faith. Our text today is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. It's a wonderful text. I'm excited to be preaching it this morning. I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read. And I'm going to begin reading at the start of the paragraph in verse 3. Hear the word of God. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. 
by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, in godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whosoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This passage, this passage before us, is truly divine doctrine into the fruitful and grace-filled life of a believer. Is it not? It's an enumeration of Christian virtues. That's what it is. One of, really, the New Testament's pinnacles of mixed indicatives and imperatives, and I'll talk about that briefly. But it's a mixture of these things that both exhort and encourage the believer to living faithfully. Here, Peter commands, and it's a command. He commands a keen diligence in bestowing virtues to bolster one's sanctification, to bolster their faith toward a princely entrance through heaven's gates. The fruitful and grace-filled life of a believer is a gift from God that must require our willful discipline to apply such graces to finish the race well. What do I mean by that, the race? To finish living our sanctified life that we're given until we die or the Lord comes back. Come quickly, O Lord Jesus. The Christian life, it's antithetical to apathy. We'll talk about that this morning. It's it's antithetical to apathy and Really, a, a giving in just to get by. Because that's what that is, apathy, a giving in to just get by. We know what that's like. It's not these things, the Christian life. It is to abide in Christ. And in so doing, it means to be walking daily in the, in the new, newness of life. There is a glorious end in sight that we must always keep before us. There is a glorious end in sight, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. All of this, brothers and sisters, all of this, Peter was taught by Christ. Everything I've just said here, Peter was taught this by Christ, and, and it took time for this to sink in for our brother Peter. And he would have his readers, and of course you all by extension, possessing a very same faith as his, he would see to it that we would avoid wasting time in unfaithfulness. And what a waste it is. In unfaithfulness, in spiritual laziness, and instead that we would seize, seize the divine power granted in reflecting these graces that he lists here. These graces given in our lives. That, beloved, that, beloved, is how one lives faithfully in Christ. By reflecting the grace found in Christ. Our passage today teaches us a few things. Number one, you must reflect the Christian virtues to be living faithfully. 
Number two, you must grow in the Christian virtues to be living faithfully. And number three, you must practice the Christian virtues and thereby rest assured in Christ. There is a resting. Let's go to my first point here. You must reflect the Christian virtues to be living faithfully. In our text, beginning in verse 5, Peter calls us to reconsider the previous verses when he writes, for this very reason. Peter has pointed to God's great work in saving us and equipping us. But now, in our text today, he points to our work and the process of salvation. Don't misunderstand me here. This is not to suggest a works-based salvation. It's not. Not too long ago, we went through James. I'm speaking of the sanctifying nature of the life of the believer post-conversion, that sanctifying portion of our life. God calls us to good works. He does. He calls us to good works wrought in the Spirit. And in a, in a very similar way, really, in these verses, Peter's doing the same thing as Paul did. As Paul did early in Philippians chapter 2, when he said to the church, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's not a foreign concept. It's clearly taught by the Lord and the apostles. God has given us his, his very precious and great promises, and he faithfully fulfills them. But now, now Peter aims to remind his readers that God expects us to do our part. And let's be true to Scripture in our understanding of what our part entails. Because as I just quoted, Scripture, what Paul wrote, as I just quoted that, it is God who not only equips us to do what he commands, he even supplies the will to do so. So it's God who's doing that real work. But we have been called to do good works. And, and truly, how lost, how lost would we be if the Spirit of God was not constantly, constantly attending to our great needs? And many of those is to do these good works. Well, in these first few verses in our text this morning, verses 5 through 7, Peter lists seven virtues or graces, saving graces, really. He, he lists seven virtues that we are to supplement our faith with or to supply our faith with, okay? Now, this list of Peter's, it's kind of unique among lists that we read in Scripture. And it's not just in Scripture, this particular literary device that Peter employs. It's a, called a sorites, a sorites, S-O-R-I-T-E-S, a sorites. It's a common way, especially in Peter's day, to communicate unity of facts, a unity of facts that rely one upon another in a succession which build up to a climactic conclu conclusion. And I think you could see that as you read these, this list. Asorites. Paul uses this rhetorical device a couple times in Romans. Romans chapter 10 and Romans 8. James, he uses a very brief form of it in James chapter 1 verse 15 when he says, Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. There's a succession here. And there's a climactic end, if you will. I love lists in the Bible. I do. And when I get a new shiny Bible, I, it's hard to, am I going to write in this? Am I going to circle this and mark it up? Or am I going to leave it? It's, it's a cross I bear. Um, I love these things. I love the lists. And what they try to do, Clearly, they're meant to grab our attention, and they do. 
They grab our attention. But there is a warning to consider when reading them in Scripture. They're formulaic presentation, and sometimes it feels very much formulaic. That it might suggest that if I do this, then that will happen. And there is a warning to consider in verses 5 through 7 against taking these virtues that are being called out and creating a sort of mere moralism. Now, Pastor Wright preached on some of this last week, how we can do that, tend to try to be moralistic in our living. There were some errors in the early church that, that even continue today, where the whole counsel of Scripture can be ignored. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole counsel of Scripture being ignored, and really the sole teaching given sometimes can be just an ethical listing or grouping of things. Do this, do this, do this, do this. When Jesus, when he taught on ethics, his centering of the moral life was bound up in love. It was bound up in love. Love for God, first and foremost, and secondly, love for neighbor. The first and second greatest commandments. And keeping those two in the forefront helps really, it helps to disseminate our tendency to turn lists into some legalistic dogma. Okay? So that's, that's the warning here. It's a sm- kind of a small warning here. Uh, beloved, beware of developing a form of spiritual OCD. Where one cannot see the forest through the trees. You know, so fixated on the particulars that he forgets the general scene. The general lay of the land. ritualistically repeating some ethical formula and thinking that that saves him, that somehow it gives him more favor to God, that God's going to be blessing him more richly somehow. Being at the same time very ignorant of the whole counsel of Scripture. There's also some cause of warning for the young believer who can, in error, take from a list, even a list like here, find those particulars that seem to appeal to him most and kind of forget about the others on the list. I'm really good at knowledge, or at least I think I am. I'm really good at that. And you forget about self-control. Can find, sometimes forget about the other things in the list. But that is not what Peter is presenting here. He's not presenting some formula to follow, really, in that way. It's not a regular list. Again, it's, it's one that's specially designed. It does build up to a climax, and that is love. It's at the very end of the list, the last virtue. That we are to add to faith. Now, these are virtues that we are commanded to add. They are not spiritual gifts in the sense of primarily given to the, to the church to build up the church. These are saving graces, as I mentioned earlier. They are savings graces that are primarily intended to bolster our individual faith. Which, yes, should eventually turn into blessings for the church. But first and foremost, primarily, it's to bolster the, our individual faith. These virtues help to combat our sinful desires and the corruption that is in the world. And Peter would see that his readers would make full use of them for God's glory and for their own good. This morning during Sunday school, um, Stephen did an excellent job teaching on the Lord's Supper and he talked about Saving Faith, chapter 14 in the London Baptist Confession, and it talks about these things, particularly in the first and third chapter. These saving graces meant to bolster our faith. Well, let's walk through these. The first virtue that Peter commands to make every effort in adding to one's faith, that first virtue is virtue. 
That's how my ESV Bible reads it. That first virtue is virtue. Well, others, other translations put it as goodness uh, or moral excellence instead of virtue. A believer needs such virtue, such moral excellence applied to their faith. If they want to do as the Apostle Paul modeled when he wrote in Philippians 3 verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That pressing forward for that upward call, that requires a moral excellence being lived out in our faith. The second virtue that we are to supplement our faith with is knowledge. Now, I've mentioned that knowledge is a prominent theme in this letter of Peter's. Doing things in the knowledge of God and of Christ. Now, this knowledge that Peter enlists here refers to divine truth about who God is and what he has done and what he reveals as his will. Who God is, what he's done, and what he's revealed at his will. It urges a spiritual discernment, uh, discerning of things that really builds up. It culminates into wise living, to being wise, this knowledge. Truth properly understood and applied. It's what proper biblical knowledge is to lead to. John MacArthur he notes that this knowledge is related to illumination, which is having one's mind accurately enlightened about the truth of Scripture. Now, of course, what does that require? It requires knowing your Bibles, its themes and theologies. It requires being a student and sitting under teaching. The third virtue that we are to add to our faith is self-control. Now, self-control, we read, flows from knowledge here in this list. It is a fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5. Paul likened the way he tried to explain self-control was uh, thinking about an athlete and what an athlete must depend on to compete well. It requires self-control and, and discipline right? Now, the self-control that Peter lists here, enumerates, it's namely spiritual discipline that we are to add to our faith. Discipline to steer clear of being led into, temp into temptation. Discipline to hold our tongues or control them to be tools for blessing and not cursing. It takes self-control. This virtue, we'll get into this more, this virtue was especially needed by Peter's readers who were encountering false teachers that were trying to persuade some of them into a libertarian lifestyle where faith was being divorced from conduct and a kind of sensual, sensuality was being promoted. Now, we'll get into that more as we go into chapter 2 of the letter. The fourth virtue we are to supply our faith flowing from self-control is steadfastness. Some Bibles translate it as endurance or perseverance or even patience. I like the additive, the additive nature of the word steadfastness. Being stead, you know, firm, unwavering, and holding fast. Being loyal, like the steadfast love of the Lord. The Greek word translated here as steadfast can be difficult to translate into English. Commentator William Barclay, he writes that the Greek word does not simply mean to accept and, then, and to endure, but that there is always hear this, there is always a forward look in it. 
a forward look in steadfast, and being steadfast. It is said of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12 that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. There's a forward looking into this steadfastness. That is Christian steadfastness. It is the courageous acceptance of everything that life can do to us and the transmuting of even the worst event into just another step on our upward way. Another step in our sanctification. And again, such is the steadfast love of God toward his saints. The fifth virtue that flows from steadfastness is godliness. All right, we all, sometimes I think we can think that if I have godliness, then I've got it all. I understand that, understand that thinking. Well, let's, Paul wrote in, first, um, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he wrote this. Quote, the godliness, that godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It means in a very basic sense, reverence for God, godliness, reverence for God. But it is a reverence for him that, that permeates the believer from the inside out. All the cells are affected it permeates the believer from the, it is a, a spiritual barometer of sorts godliness the sixth virtue which flows from godliness in our list is brotherly affection also translated as brotherly kindness the bible tells us that we will be known by outsiders by the love that we have for each other but as a saving grace such Brotherly affection turns us away from selfish motives, doesn't it? If we are having love for our brothers and sisters, it will turn us away from a selfish love. It turns our hearts' attentions to our brothers and sisters in Christ. First and foremost, those within the body of Christ. The virtue here, brotherly affection, it's it's very akin to the second greatest commandment, which makes really sense, I think, in Peter's specialized list where virtue builds upon virtue, building up and up and up. You know, for certain, Peter remembers what Jesus had told one of the religious leaders when asked about which is the greatest commandment in the law, to which Jesus replied, giving the first and second greatest commandments, which leads to the last and climactic virtue in Peter's list, flowing from brotherly affection. And of greatest value to our faith is the virtue of love. Love for others, especially for fellow believers, has always been inseparable from the love of God. This love in Peter's list is the agape love, a sacrificial and selfless love of the will. This sorites culminates in the virtue of love. As we consider this list of virtues that we are to bring in every effort to add to our faith we must employ a rather ordinary means of grace that peter did not list and that is prayer with certainty the effort that we are commanded to give in supplementing our faith with these virtues requires much prayer it should be a prayer given in complete confidence as well, brothers and sisters. How many times do you desire to go to the Lord in prayer and know that you're praying God's will? Well, here you have it. 
We can come to God in confidence and boldness, knowing clearly that it is God's will that you would have these virtues added to your faith to withstand the flesh, the world, and the devil, to be true worshipers of the one true God. So, in all diligence, pray. Peter continues his teaching on these virtues in verses 8 and 9, and he refers to them as qualities, which takes me to my second point. You must grow in the Christian virtues to be living faithfully. Let's read verses 8 and 9 again. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now what are we to do with these virtues, these qualities that Peter has enumerated? What are we to do with them? Well, here he exhorts his readers to apply them so that they may reap a fruitful harvest in knowing Jesus Christ. We don't, we're not given them just to have them. Got to be used. And a neglect of these virtues results in what? Spiritual loss, deprivation. You know, this spiritual nearsightedness, blindness. The way Peter presents this matter here is like two sides of a coin in verses 8 and 9. Only one side takes a positive position. The other side takes it from a negative point of view. So why is it in verse 8 that Peter says, if these qualities are yours, are yours, How can they be mine? How can they be yours? It's because they are in the vine, these qualities. They are in the vine, the vine being Christ. And they, Peter's readers, and you, brothers and sisters, being branches in that vine, share in those qualities. They are yours for the having. Now this points back to verse 4 where Peter says that they are partakers of the divine nature. These qualities that Peter has laid out, I mentioned this earlier, they're both imperatives and, and indicatives. They are commanded to vigorously apply them to their faith. The imperatives here, they, are, they must apply them, making every effort to their faith. And they also are divine characteristics that they are, to, they are given to possess and reflect from the inside out. From the heart out, from the center out, just as they are to reflect Christ in being Christ-like. You want to be Christ-like? You need to be reflecting these virtues that are in Christ. They are to be indicators of the manner of faith that they possess and live out. These virtues. These saving graces are available to them. They just must pray for them and use them. These qualities serve a purpose, which Peter goes on to explain. And he describes it a bit polemically here. First, they are to be seen as increasing in a believer's faith. Growing. Growing for the purpose of remaining fruitful. You know, to be rather kept from being ineffective or unfruitful. Which may be understood as, you know, really much saying the same thing. Ineffective and unfruitful. You know, grow in these enumerated qualities in order to remain fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which really is just longhand for saying, in Christ, which we often say, perhaps even unthinkingly so, in Christ. 
Well, the fruitfulness, fruitfulness here, it's only fruit that can be found on the vine. You're not going to find it anywhere else. It's not fruit-bearing for selfishness either. It is fruit-bearing to remain effective. Effective in the service of the Lord. Much like, rather unlike, that unfaithful messenger that we see denounced in Scripture. We don't want to be like that unfaithful messenger. To remain effective in a fruitful faith is to be someone who can be counted on, relied upon. You know, someone who is ready to serve in whatever capacity or way that God has ordered in that individual believer's life. It's going to be different for us to be ready. Like those ten virgins who didn't have to go back to find that oil. They were ready for Christ's return. For most Christians, it's being effective for serving the brotherhood in love. Then there's this other side of the coin, the negative side. Gangrene can set in when these qualities of faith are waning, not increasing, or just lacking in general, lacking being reflected. And one of the more prominent appearances of gangrene in the church is in the form of apathy. Apathy in the life of the believer, it bars a person from joy in the spirit. It stunts growth, and it's of little to no help in the spiritual life of the church, certainly not in the life of the believer. And I think it can be contagious. Even the individual's family suffers when one is apathetic, especially moms and dads. Staying apathetic long enough, you stay that way long enough, and it becomes harder and harder to recognize that you're even in it. That's scary. So we need a faithful brother or sister come along. When it was spiritual. A spiritual apathy is much a result of the spiritual nearsightedness, even blindness, that Peter calls out in verse 9. And that forgetfulness that Peter mentions in the latter part of verse 9, that's a symptom, church. That's a symptom which you're going to see in a believer's apathy. Forgetfulness. Now, what is most forgotten is the tragedy and ugliness and enslavement of sin. It should always the thought of sin taking foot in our life, it should always startle us. Peter writes this for the believer, for the church, for one who has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's what he says. That's what he's forgotten. He has forgotten what was declared to God with a clear conscience in his baptism. His forgetfulness is like he can't see the joys to be had while abiding in Christ, in the vine. This spiritual amnesia, it disarms him. It takes away his weapons. It pacifies him against his great enemies that seek to corrupt him, to devour him. In this way, we can see the wisdom in celebrating the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. You know, God's people have always been a people in great need of being reminded of what God has done and what he's doing and what he will do. Remember. Remember. It's a very common theme that we see being preached to both the pre-exilic and the post-exilic Israel. 
you know, before they went to Babylon and after they went to Babylon. And I am certain uh, that the priests, those religious leaders that Jeremiah chastises, that they were largely riddled with a form of apathy. You know, sadly, I have experienced personally at times in my own Christian life, the 31 years I've walked with the Lord. And, and sadly, I see it plaguing a number of you. It's something that should alarm us. Which takes me to my last point. Point number three. Practice the Christian virtues and rest assured in Christ. Peter closes this paragraph in verses 10 and 11. He writes, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter starts off verse 9 here, or verse 10, writing, Therefore, therefore, because of a forgetfulness that leads to spiritual nearsightedness, even blindness, therefore be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. It's another command that we're given here. And it's employed with a sense of urgency. If the, the Greek understanding of that word could be fully translated out, you would see and feel a sense of urgency that we're supposed to take there and being all the more diligent. Because spiritual blindness is a painful reality. It must not be ignored. We cannot wait to do this. We must be urgent about this matter. Now, of course, what we have here in these verses here um, is a metaphor. You're, in terms of spiritual nearsightedness and, and blindness, it's, it's, it's a metaphor. Our eyes, our corporal eyes, may see very well. Your eyes may see very well. In fact, your ears, all your body, body's senses may be functioning quite well. And you may be using these senses very efficiently and effectively in the world. Even gaining notoriety at your workplace and around your friends because you are so effective in completing tasks. It's a good thing. Even a blessing. It is. But your spiritual blindness will make you unable to see the truth. The real truth about what is most important. Or perhaps the malady has remained so long that you refuse to even see certain truths. Thus the urgency and call to hear what Peter is commanding. Confirm your calling and election. And confirm can mean to assure, as some translations actually put it. So, in other words, we are commanded to bring assurance to our faith to which we have been called to, to which we have been elected to in eternity past. Assurance by means of practicing these seven virtues that we are to add to our faith in Christ Jesus. It's not simply an assurance of faith that I'm a true believer. That's not the assurance that Peter just simply wants us to walk away with. But an assurance of a strong and abiding faith that should be pursued in all the more diligence. That, that is the sense of urgency we're supposed to get here. You know, what should urgency look like? What, how can we describe a sense of urgency? that we need to apply to the confirmation of our faith. I was thinking about this this week. Uh, when I was courting my wife, Emily, I did not play hard to get. I didn't play hard to get at all. The whole world around us could see that she was my heart's desire, so to speak. 
I was constantly in prayer with a sense of, I've got to have her, Lord, if you will. I've got to have her. If it will be your will, O Lord. You're praying and praying and praying and praying. I'm sure some of you have experienced the same thing. That urgency. Willing to accept the Lord's decision, but hoping, hoping greatly. This is the urgency that we need in growing and putting to practice these qualities. Slap yourself out of your apathy if that's what you're in. I don't know. That's the urgency we need. Peter gives a reason for doing so. He says so that you will never fall. Now, does Peter mean here that you will never sin? That that we can hope to never sin this side of heaven? That's not what Peter's getting at. He's not splitting those hairs. So don't. He's saying that when you are practicing and living out of faith that is increasing and growing in these virtues, all of them culminating in love, then you will not be stumbling. In fact, you will never fall into an ineffective and unfruitful state as you practice these qualities. You may not be doing everything that you think that you want to do, brother and sister, in the service of the Lord, but, but be patient. This steadfastness or patience that you are to be practicing will help you to remain faithful. You know, practicing your faith in this way, as we put it at the start, we see here at the beginning of verse 11, for in this way, it brings with it a very true promise. Your entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. That's how he ends this paragraph. As one commentator put it, Instead of sort of a puritanical prose, he said, The believer will have lived such a rich life in the faith that his transition through death from his earthly state to heaven, that, that is his entrance into heaven, will be barely noticeable. Now, I understand what the commentator is getting at here. That such a grace-filled life of faith and such a mighty Savior can trans so much of the world's pain and ugliness. Just basking in the joy of the Lord. But truly, we know, no matter how godly a man or woman can be or attain to be here on earth, there is no comparison to what awaits in heaven and beholding its glories and the, the change that you expect, will experience in your own person. I see this richly provided entrance that Peter writes about as being really a reward for having lived out a strong faith. A reward that we can be diligent to receive for ourselves. And I want you to make a note of something here. Nowhere in this passage is Peter addressing the so-called temporary believer. Someone who has professed Christ as Lord and Savior but never truly believed or never truly trusted in him as Lord, the temporary believer. Now, there is just the strong, grace-filled believer and the nearsighted, chronically apathetic believer. One who will have a rich entrance into heaven provided one might be entering smelling of smoke, having lost much of what was worked for. You know, living faithfully is to see that these virtues are growing in your spiritual life, friends. Evidence will be seen in bearing fruit, fruit that only a good tree can produce. And truly, just what good is a fruitless fruit tree? It's ineffective and unfruitful, right? Not good. Now I'm going to close here, and in doing so, I want to apply a bit of wisdom from Spurgeon. 
I want to encourage you. If you find yourself lately being more better described by verse 9. Spurgeon writes, if you would get out of a doubting state, if you would get out of a, a doubting state, get out of an idle, ineffective, un unfruitful, even apathetic state, if you would get out of a trembling state, get out of an indifferent, lukewarm state, for lukewarmness and doubting and laziness and trembling very naturally go hand in hand. If you would rather enjoy the imminent grace, the full assurance of faith under the blessed Spirit's influence and assistance, then do what the Scripture tells you. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. In what and how will you be diligent, he asks. He says, note how the scripture has given us a list. And when you have got all these virtues, then you will know your calling and election. And just in proportion as you practice these heavenly rules of life, in this divine manner, you will come to know that you are called and you are elect. By no other means can you attain to a knowledge of that except by the witness of the Spirit, bearing witness with your spirit that you are born of God. And then witnessing in your conscience that you are not what you were, but you are a new person in Christ, new person in Jesus, and therefore called and therefore elected. Brothers and sisters, this is what Paul has called us to. Now, Peter has called us to. This is what we are to be seeking, to reflect those virtues that are in Christ himself. 